This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. There's two quick things that I want to mention before we get to the interview. The first is that these skill calls are a new feature of the show that I'll be running with climate farmers in our ongoing effort to support and promote regenerative agriculture in Europe and are now going to be offered live every two weeks. These calls will feature interviews and presentations from experts and innovators in farming from around the world, but beyond the people that we feature and the topics that we cover, there are also extended listener questions and discussion sessions at the end that I won't be publishing either on the podcast nor on the YouTube channel. And the reason for that is that we've observed that there's a reluctance in the farming communities to openly share mistakes and difficulties in their journey with the public. And I completely understand that. I mean, there's plenty of things that I screwed up on in the business and the farm design back when we were getting the farm set up in Guatemala, which I don't put out to the world. But in order for our members to feel secure in communicating honestly about the aspects of their lives and operations that they'd rather not show on social media and their own educational content, these sessions are always kept private. We also keep the attendance of the skill building calls capped at 25 participants per call so that everyone gets a chance to share and ask questions if they want. So if you're a farmer in Europe, regardless of whether you're running a regenerative, an organic, or a conventional farm, we'd love to have you on a call to hear about what you're working on or wrestling with so that we can support you and connect you with others near you. We know that it can be difficult, often working in the fields alone or feeling isolated in rural areas, so come and join the Climate Farmers Network where you'll always be in good company. You can register to attend live calls through the links on our Instagram account or on their website at climatefarmers.org. Now the second opportunity I want to tell you about is that Richard Perkins, the speaker on today's episode, is now offering an intimate look on how he runs his highly successful farm in a new free mini-series on profitable regenerative farming, which includes some great resources, including a downloadable guide on how to build his roll-away nest boxes, an editable spreadsheet download of the financial modeling for his beef enterprises, and a lot more. The mini-series is now open and is only available for a limited time. It'll shut down on June 10th, so don't twiddle your thumbs on this one. Check out the link in the show notes for this episode and start your learning journey right away. Now with those announcements out of the way, let's jump into the episode. Alright, welcome everybody to the first of the regenerative skill building calls that I host with Climate Farmers, which is a new organization working to promote regenerative agriculture across Europe. Now, these calls are specifically designed for our growing community of farmers and regenerative agriculture consultants around the continent. We listen to their interests and concerns online and then reach out to the experts who can best answer them and offer guidance. In order to receive invitations to participate on the live calls, you can subscribe to the Climate Farmers newsletter on their website or follow the links on our Instagram and on the Regenerative Skills Discord server. Now in this first call, Richard Perkins joined us to speak about the challenges of market gardening. Now since Richard has almost two decades of market gardening experience, and of course the fact that many of the farmers in our Climate Farmers Network also focuses on intensive vegetable production, we explored the many facets of this popular agricultural enterprise. We covered preparation and planning steps for success, improving efficiency in daily tasks and production, marketing your products, and building a loyal customer base, and that was all before we opened it up for listener questions. So be sure to stick around as well until the end of this episode to hear the questions that we'll be discussing on the Discord server this week. And now with all of that out of the way, let me present Richard Perkins. I'm sure many of you know his content and his work already, but Richard is the co-owner and director of Ridgedale Permaculture and is one of the leading experts and educators on small-scale profitable regenerative agriculture. And today we're going to be going over some of his knowledge from his own content and publications, as well as just general advice for having been in the game for, well, you're getting into your eighth season on this farm now, aren't you? On this farm, but I've been growing vegetables for 20 years now. I went to ag school for crop production, organic crop production when I was 18. So I've been growing veg ever since then. And part of what I've learned from your content is while there are a lot of intricacies and things that are important to the context of where you're growing and 
how to get the ecological aspect of growing correct, it's one of the more straightforward processes is actually producing the food itself. And a lot of the intricacies and a lot of the places where people find uh, troubles or get kind of tripped up in the process is the business aspect and running all of the management in the complexity of the entire system. And so mm -hmm. those are some of the things that came up in a lot of the feedback from our farmers in this network. And I've tried to compile some major, let's say categories that we're gonna to try to explore in the interview. And then we're gonna open it up for them to ask their own specific questions in the last half hour. So if you're yeah. set, I would love to jump in to the first topic, which is planning for success in market gardening. Sure. And if anybody has questions throughout this interview, you can post them in the chat. I'm not going to address them until later on, and then I'll give you some more directions on how we can do the Q&A. But until then, uh, let's start looking at the financial planning from the beginning that can set you up for success throughout the operation. Because I know that you really advocate for careful financial uh, projections and really focusing on the numbers before launching into a new enterprise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the, just to be clear, Oliver, are we having a conversation or are you giving me talking points that I go off in random directions on? <laughs> <laughs> well, I know you're better at the second one. <laughs> so let's do it that way, but I'll give you enough prompts to keep us somewhat reined in here. <laughs> yeah, well, what to say? Well, I, I guess there's a few interconnected points there. The first would be yeah market gardening as a whole i want to clarify the context of how i perceive this so market gardening has been the most promoted of the whole suite of regenerative ag and i've i've said this many times but i find myself pushing back against that in the sense that if you look at all the really famous market gardeners around the world they're all market gardeners they're not farmers now i'm not saying that to be critical or insulting, I'm saying nearly all the famous market gardeners you hear of don't have deep experience with other realms of farming. And so I think that the public gets a distorted view of farming through that, you know, in this world of YouTube and memes and Instagram and blah, 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 and, and missing out all the details behind that. And yes, it's true that market gardening is perhaps an enterprise that it needs the least land, it needs the least investments, you don't need a particularly large amount of skills to get going. But the, the bit that's missed out is it's by far the most labor intensive of all enterprises you could possibly run. I mean, that was the point of my book and the comparative analysis in that was to really illustrate to people like, yeah, sure, this is a nice enterprise that you can set up in a tiny space. You can maybe get a few months off depending on your climate zone. And that suits a lot of young people today that want to go surfing for three months in Bali or whatever it is. But there are far easier ways to earn a family income on a farm, but it might, but they all look different. You know, like my hen enterprise, my egg enterprise earns the same money for about 35% of the time but it's seven days a week and you can't miss it because it's livestock and it's a welfare issue. So those things need unpacking and clarifying. And I think that's been a large part of my role is to sort of push back against that because it, a, a big part of what we do, Oliver, as you know, is the first part of our education is holistic context and specifically talking about Alan Savory's work with holistic management and getting people super clear, like what are your deepest values and why do you want to actually do this? Because a lot of people come to our farm with 10 years of dream of becoming a market gardener and then they leave and set up an amazing pasture poultry enterprise. And also vice versa, you know, people's visions change when they get into contact with things directly and look at what day in day out work looks like. So anyway, that's a bit of preamble because my context is heavily um i wanted to say jaded but <laughs> slanted by that because it's yeah like of course you can make an incredibly beautiful life 
through market gardening and many people are doing that but it's it needs to be looked at if you know we just finished running our online training that's run for the last two months and I've been really happy to see the amount of people who have shaved off some of their idealism they, they get excited like I want to start eggmobiles and plant trees and have a market garden it's like well you know once you start a market garden to make a, a decent amount of income, you're pretty much tied to that. You don't have time to be running around doing other things. So it's just good to get that sort of time. It, it's not just looking at the finances, it's looking at the time too. So that's super important. In terms of planning for financial success, I mean, obviously you have to do detailed market analysis of where you are. We're working on a different level to, you know, what are our options? We can sell direct to consumer. We can sell in advance through CSAs. We can sell to chefs and restaurants, you know, or find niche markets for strange microgreens or whatever it is. And your proximity to market will obviously affect that greatly. But one early thing that we need to think about is the types of crops we grow. Now, nearly every market garden that I visited that is struggling is growing a high proportion of very low value crops. So the first thing to think about in terms of what you grow, like a lot of people are influenced by what they like, not what their customers like, you know. And I grew up in the UK where early veg box schemes kind of shot themselves in the foot by you know, presenting things poorly or putting five courgettes in a box in the middle of summer because they couldn't get rid of it. And it's like, well, who eats five courgettes in a week? Like, you know, it doesn't make sense. So I feel like over the last five years or so, the level of professionalism has gone up really greatly and that's great to see. But a big analysis point would be looking at what you want to grow. So profitability is obviously a factor of how long things take to grow, how many of them fit in a bed, what they sell for, how long you harvest them over, whether they're a single harvest, multi-harvest or many wheat harvest and the demand for that product. And then there's obviously cultural concerns in with that too. Like cabbage is not worth a lot here, but in Germany, it might be absolutely demanded that that's part of a share or like potatoes are not worth much here but in midsummer new potatoes are worth a fortune you know so those cultural nuances are you know i guess obvious if you're growing up in a country you know what they are naturally anyway but when you it depends on how you're considering selling your product how you're going to balance those low and high value crops because obviously we've seen a lot of the well-known market gardeners, you've seen people like Curtis Stone, who are living on the edge or were living on the edge of a city doing, you know, to a million people where you can only sell high value, quick rotation crops. Great, but most of us aren't. And so that's not replicable. If, if you live in a rural setting, you can't work on that basis. Obviously, we've got highly perishable crops. So we need to think about how we're going to sell before we start anything. Like we can't make any crop plans until we think about what it is and who we're actually selling to and then striking a good balance between high and low value crops. And inevitably, you will probably always need to grow some low value crops to have enough breadth of product to be, unless you're aimed at totally niche markets, you will need some degree of diversity. And, and that's not a bad thing. And, and it's a question I see you had for later on, Pat's, but one thing I can really stress to, to folks listening is the, like we have a very broad product portfolio at our farm. We have meat turkeys, meat chickens, we have pork, we have beef, we have lamb, vegetables, microgreens, eggs, and that in itself is incredibly powerful as a sales tool. Like as soon as fresh chickens come along, we sell loads more vegetables. And it, that I always say this, but in the words of Joel Salatin, it's much easier to find a hundred customers that will spend a thousand dollars with you than finding a thousand customers that will spend a hundred dollars with you. That is totally true across the board. And so whilst I'm not saying everyone needs to go out and 
run diversified farms that's very complex and you know not necessarily in everyone's context but diversity in itself helps sell things so it gives you some ability to manage cash flow and iron out the sort of economy through the year so key points are like who are you going to sell to and how and then you can start configurating what sort of crops you want to grow and then you need to look at like the technical details of like well what are optimal spacings and how many fit in a bed and then you start getting into crop planning of like well what's a bed of this worth and so a good way to start with that would be pegging your price to the marketplace so what we do is we look at the wholesale suppliers and then we add a margin to it so we're we're not competing on the same playing field we've got locality as a marketing point freshness we're giving customers the product the day that we harvest it always and quality like we can do things by hand that machines and factories can't do you know like those crappy salad bags you get in the supermarket there's no competition so there are three leverage points and they will always be your leverage points and so then you have to seek out the sort of people who want those types of food chefs always want it but they're a different ball game because they're very exacting and you know they they can like chefs all over the world can pick up the phone and order anything they want next day and you are probably a pain in the ass you are a marketing point for them but you're a pain in the ass so you have to learn how to present to them like they're used to being presented to you need to speak their language as it were but it also gives you then that opportunity on the flip side to sell bulk and sell excesses and that's the way we've always marketed we've basically lost all of our restaurant customers so one of our most i with covid which i'm sure many people have one of our most ideal customers is a big spa that's quite famous in sweden it's the closest customer we could possibly have and they would typically spend 40 50 euros a year with us not just on veg but on chickens and eggs and stuff as well but that's just disappeared so we've leveraged all sales through the rico rings that we can talk about if people aren't familiar with that which is better for us because we get more by selling directly to customers anyway um and it's going off on a branch but we started out as a csa and at the time we set up in sweden there were only five other csas in sweden so it's quite a new thing like i always say sweden is 20 years behind a lot of europe it's like we were the first people doing eggmobiles and pasture broilers and it's all quite new here whereas some of that in the countries you're listening from is probably you know many decades old um so we've transitioned ourselves quite a lot so our planning has changed massively over the time we've been here uh, but it still focuses around the same core tenets which is to optimize the ratio of highly valuable crops to low value crops don't try and compete with field grown crops like potatoes or cabbage like we'll even buy in crops from big organic farms and tell our customers we're doing that because it's more cost effective to do that and yeah and then just really what we've been doing in the last few years is leveraging our sales to as we've transitioned from veg box to recos which is a pre-sold farmers market we've kind of incentivized people to stay on that veg box model so we do a, a simple thing we bunch vegetables at let's turn it into euros so we bunch vegetables at two and a half euros of value and we get to that value by looking at the wholesale price and adding a margin and it's important to watch those prices obviously because you know early tomatoes are worth a lot but when everyone's got tomatoes they're not worth anything so it, you you have to keep an eye on the wider food market like once you're producing and you're farming and selling in a globalized food market essentially you have to play by the rules to some degree if you're a micro producer you can kind of circumnavigate that but for most of us with a bigger product portfolio you have to be aware of you know what people can get with their money elsewhere and 
And what was I about to say? Yeah, so so we bunch things at two and a half euros. But if you only, so we're doing custom orders now. So if you only buy one bunch, you're a pain in the ass. You're not our ideal customer. So you can have that, but you're going to pay a premium. So we'll sell it to you for three and a half euros. And then we incentivize people. So if you buy five bunches, you pay 15 euros. If you buy 10, you pay 25 euros, i.e. you get the actual value of the price we set. So we're being very open with customers about that, but we're telling them essentially buy a veg box office and you get great crops at great value. If you buy less, you're a bit of a pain, so you can pay for it. And, and they're willing to do that. And, and it's been really interesting, Oliver, to see as we transitioned fully over to Rico, we still had our CSA subscribers. And then on the adverts that come up on Facebook, it's like, here's your VegBox subscription, and here it is on Rico, and you can see it's the same thing, but it's 40% more expensive. And people really wanted to do that because, let's face it, like in today's day and age, most people expect things next day delivery or whatever, you know, convenience is everything. And so people don't actually want to sign up for a whole season and pay up in front. You know, they like the idea of it and they feel good about it, but it's like, it's so out of tune with how we consume across society that I feel like people are much happier not to have to do that. And there's a particular problem here in Sweden where everyone goes on long summer holidays here. So it's always a problem and Swedish people don't talk to each other. So they don't, you know, like in England, you would just be like, hey, next door neighbor, do you want my veg box for two weeks? I'm going away. But here that's, you know, we are naturally social distancing as a, <laughs> as a country. So that's a lot of people have problems with that. And people we found are willing to pay that 40% higher price to have the freedom of choice or the illusion of choice where we say, here's all the veg you can choose from. You can pick your own box, but we get to tell what's available anyway. So we can manipulate and direct that to make sure we sell evenly across what we have to supply. So, it, but it's interesting. It's, it's made me think like the next step for market gardeners is looking into convenience orientation. And that could look different ways. That could look like, ready packaged meals that people can cook in this increasingly busy society. I spoke to some people on the Farm Like a Hero tour last summer. There's an Irish farm that's branched out into that. And it's fantastic business for them. And whilst that's like, you know, if you're just setting up a market garden on a couple of thousand square meters, the logistics and the, the sort of development and maturity of a business like that could seem miles away but it's I think it's the next step to start considering I, I feel like that whole piece around farmers being victims it's almost like the way we choose to sell is playing into that it's like please come and help us out because we're struggling on the land it's like well yeah but no that's not how the world works also it's like how do we step up our games too one thing that I've seen a couple of people asking about is there's still some unclarity about what Rico rings are and how they're different from that CSA model or the, mm. the veg boxes. If you could just clarify. Sure. They're totally different. So the CSA we ran is just like any CSA. I'm sure everyone is aware of that. People are paying up front. They get a box each week for however many weeks we said, and we can tell them in advance approximately what they can expect. Rico is very different. So it came out of Finland, a man called Thomas Snellman. And Rico is spread wildly in Scandinavia. It's incredible. It's the most efficient sales model I've ever seen anywhere on the planet. It's basically run purely on Facebook. It's an organized farmer. It's a pre-sold farmer's market, you could say. And you have a Facebook group for the producers. And you have a Facebook group for the outward facing bit and people in the town or wherever the location is can join up. And then every producer each week, say on Thursday is the day of the Rico, it's going to be Thursday in this car park at this time. 
So people put up their adverts on Friday for the, the week before, and they say, I've got lamb, I sell it like this, it costs this much, here's a video to how I produce it. I sell vegetables, I've got 10 varieties in the box, I've got eggs or whatever. And then you just write on Facebook, I'd like 30 eggs in the veg box. And that is a sales contract. And so that gets you around trading laws because you're not a marketplace, you're, a, you're just delivering. So what we were doing from the beginning of the farm was cultivating these drop-off points. And that was a really important thing we did kind of unknowingly in the first year. We spent a lot of time meeting people, developing. It was my partner, Hannah, that mainly did this. It was just meeting people in the community and developing connections through having fika with people. Fika is like coffee and biscuits in Sweden. But it's so important now in the rural you know, it's what people do. And it's a very old culture that, that people have time for that. And through putting a lot of time into those networks, we developed into, yeah, this sales model of just getting people on board to meet us halfway. So we would just turn up, we started in McDonald's car parks, we would turn up with like 4,000 eggs and a load of frozen chicken. And yeah, it's funny. We're like finding places that are convenient for people leaving work at a time when people are leaving work. And you've got this half hour window in winter and an hour in summer. And we just drop off all the products, get back to the farms to close hens up, etc. So we were trying to invite Swedish producers to come with us. We knew bakers, we knew cheese makers, artisanal meat people, etc. But it was too weird. They wouldn't get involved because it's just too far out of their normal sort of way of doing things but then when this rico banner came along it started spreading in sweden massively just for context in finland now five percent of all food sales in finland go through rico which is you know that's something and this is just farmers turning up in a car park opening the boot of their car and giving people food it's it's pretty remarkable and there's something like 600 odd in scandinavia now so what we did is we set up four locally to us. And because we were the admins, we decided the time and place. So we just used the time and place that we already used. And then all these other producers came along too. And that critical mass is key. So you need to have this like momentum to get people excited. Like you need a baker, meat producers, egg producers, veg producers, like enough food that people can turn up on their way home from work, buy a week's worth of awesome food and go. And so that critical mass is really key. And it drives a sort of healthy form of competition because everything's on Facebook. Like you folks listening, if you have no idea what Rico is, you can go and join a Facebook Rico anywhere in Scandinavia. I think there was a video I made on YouTube where there's a map of all the Ricos and in a link below and you can click on that, find any Rico in Oslo or wherever and go and join that Facebook group and then you can see how it works. And um, so you make that post of what you produce, but everyone else does too. So you can see what all the competition is charging, how many they're selling. Oh, Mrs. Jones is doing better than us this week like oh she's marketing it differently what's she doing oh cool that's a really nice way of taking photos or whatever so it's it actually drives this really healthy competition where everything's visible across the board and it just makes everyone do better and we we influenced that to some degree with like nicer photos and washing the vehicle and we turn up rather than like turning up in scruffy farm gear in the dirty truck and opening the boot and there's just like dead cats and mud in there it's like no we wash the vehicle we clean ourselves we show up nicely we set up almost like a market store and make an effort and it attracts people because people are walking through this car park and we're very visible and we usually have a big long line because we got so many different products we have a big customer base so what we found is it basically just brought everyone else's customers to us and it's been amazing to see like we've we didn't have hens this winter so we haven't had eggs for sale for six months we just reopened the subscriptions we actually gave our customers to two other egg producers and we just opened the subs uh, subscriptions a week ago and 95 percent of those customers are straight back 
so it's it's a lot to do with like like an image and a reputation that's very powerful you know how you present yourselves and the story you tell like people are buying the why like why are you doing this why are you living out on some random hilltop in the wind and rain growing these ridiculous celery like you know there must be a reason that you're choosing to do that as opposed to leading a normal life so that storytelling is really important and powerful and you know we live in a visual based world where an image says a thousand things and it's yeah um and then so when the rico actually happens everyone shows up drops off their products it's an hour typically in summer half an hour in winter we can turn up drop five thousand euros of products in that hour a little bit of customer contact a little bit of eye contact but the, the story i always tell is like that is enough for food security right it's like hey look at you in the eye smile acknowledge each other see you later it's like you don't have to listen to mrs jones complaining about a cat it's like i don't care about your cat i need to get home and feed my chickens like you know, like sitting there for half an hour chatting with people who just buy a tray of eggs, it's not worth your time. Like they're not paying for that time. So it's a very efficient way to sell a lot of products. And then at the end of the day, you clear that Facebook page and basically everyone kind of copies and pastes their ad again. So it clears itself out, new ads come up, everyone signs up for next week and it keeps repeating like that. And just for reference, like in our, so we, self-imposed a 50 kilometer sales radius around our farm when we moved here not because we need to but because my ideology was like hey i'll train you how to do what i'm doing but you go and set up like 100 kilometers away and if we keep spreading out we'll produce food all over the country um in that like we actually live remarkably rurally in sweden and we probably have we have a town of 5,000, a town of 10,000, a town of 20,000 uh, as our Rika rings. And then our biggest town is 50 kilometers away. Bear in mind in Sweden, people go 50 kilometers just to go to a restaurant. It's in the rural places like we are. But in that town of 50,000, uh, 70,000, sorry, that's 50 kilometers away. There are something like 16,000 people on that Rico ring. That means 16,000 random individuals in that town have gone and consciously clicked on that. It's like one in five people in that town is seeing our chickens every week. It's amazing. Like you couldn't get that even if you put thousands of euros into advertising. So it's a very powerful thing, but it really relies on a critical mass. Like if some of our students have taken this to, to Ireland and America, Canada, South Africa, some of them seem to be working some fizzled out it's it like you need to have a momentum because that's what draws people in it's got to be enough products that it's happening for people otherwise it's just a pain in the ass they can just go to an organic store or just order it online and get a box next day and yeah but that's what rico is and it, i really recommend people looking into that like you might need to stick your neck out and pioneer it but it's I, i've never seen anything like it in terms of efficiency and you know you've got to think like who are the main purchasers of good local organic food is typically generally speaking it's young mothers you know of young children they are the biggest consumers of organic food or old elderly people who remember that food used to actually taste like something um and so you can really target that you know it's there's a lot to be said for the digital modalities we have now where you can really target people. And I've had, I know people have very different levels of success with advertising and things, but I've found it incredible. I've, I reckon for every dollar I put into Facebook ads, I've got $15 out, which is an incredible return. So it's, you know, we have tools at our fingertips now that mean it's easier than ever albeit a bit more overwhelming than ever. But Rico is a, a big one. And yeah, I highly recommend. Yeah, so we went in deep about the Rico rings because that has been something that 
you've helped to pioneer and really gotten established as one of your main marketing bases, but it's not it's actually started. it's it's our only marketing basis now. Like we sell a hundred percent of everything through Rico now. Now there are definitely people here who don't have access to a Rico ring yet, or it's not established where they live. Um, I like how you mentioned that there are people who have made different efforts to set up similar types of marketing models in different places to various levels of success. Here in Spain, I've seen a couple come up, some of them actually sponsored by the local provincial governments and others that seem to be kind of broader and based online. But if that's not a really viable marketing option for you where you live, what are some of the others that you found success with before really relying on this to get to your customers? Well, CSA can work. I mean, that varies across region to region, but like the CSA is very helpful when people are starting out because it gives you that ability to get cash in and establish cash flow. But I, my sort of reflection on that is like, you really need to know what you know and you need to know what you don't know. Like think about cultivating your ideal customer, like the sort of person who's willing to pay you up front for something you say that you might be able to produce that's the exact type of customer you want. And, and there's this whole Pareto principle, 80, 20 thing, right. Of like that came out of the sort of business world, but you're not just farming vegetables or whatever it is. You're farming customers too. Like you want that type of customer and you don't want pain in the ass customers that need to tell you about their cat and stuff like that. So you kind of want to, a start at a scale where you have more customers or a bigger supply of customers than you need so that you can actually cull some of your customers. People always get offended when I talk about cull this, but this is how we think of plants and animals. And you need to be ruthless with your customer base like that. It's like, it's, it's a privilege to be able to buy incredible food in a, in a world where good food is quite sparse, you know? So as a busy farmer, you need people to meet you halfway. And if they're like, we have like a strike thing. It's like, if you're late, we'll phone you and say, hey, can I leave your order on the doorstep of this shop that the Rico's outside? Sure, no problem, okay. And if they're late again, it's like, look, basically you're not gonna be a customer anymore because we, you can't afford to wait for someone for 10 minutes. It's like their they're time, the time it's taking you is not worth it. So I think you need to early on be ruthless with cultivating the types of customers you actually want. And then if you get those types of customers, you bloody well better be sure that you give them what they pay for. You know, so if they've paid 20 euros for a veg box, make sure there's 22 euros, 24 euros of stuff in it. You know, like give them that extra bonus of herbs or excesses of crops you've got or a bunch of flowers or whatever it's like you know if you're scrimping just to make what they actually paid for they ain't coming back the next year it's like so that's my advice is like over offer sort of thing uh sorry over um extend yourself in what you actually supply like csas are really great but but you must be sure that you can produce what you say and and it's advisable to extend yourself beyond that because like a typical figure certainly that comes out of the states is like a 75 percent retention rate is considered very good in the market gardening csa and yeah another part of that would be seeking honest feedback so how do you get feedback well like you know if i asked you to write a page on a four page of how this call was tonight you know i i would anticipate 75 percent of it would either not be answered or would be absolutely useless feedback no offense but this is how feedback works right and it's like the useful feedback is is not generated in that way so how do you get really good feedback like one more way we do that is invite people to the farm and we just host them and feed them and get local brewery coming in with his local beer and tell stories and and now we're like family and now we can talk and look at each other in the eye and that's where feedback happens you know a feedback form who wants to fill in a feedback form you know 
usually the only sort of people that want to fill the feedback form in are the people that are stimulated and have problems to shout at you. <laughs> so it's not very constructive. So yeah, I would say be very, yeah, be very careful to communicate and to foster mutually beneficial communications with those ideal customers because you can't afford to lose them. Um, and it's a very special thing. Like that's why we got such high returns on our egg subscriptions now. It's like those customers will always be loyal to us as long as we don't piss them off basically. Um, and they will even accept six months without producing eggs. That's half the year, but they're, they're fine with that because they understand that we're pretty tired. We need a rest because we've been going at it for the last seven years. So that's cool. That's resiliency. It feels like, you know, and it, that comes from that little bit of real interaction. Doesn't have to be sitting down with the people for half an hour at a time. It's just like we're in a living relationship, you know, and that's what a genuine customer is, I think. I think so that's CSA, really the difference between investing in a community as a whole and really seeing your role in it as larger than just doing business and certainly the relationships you cultivate as larger than just being customer and producer and going that extra mile to understand not only their wants from what they expect from you, but also opening up that dialogue like you've talked about, which you can't do just from kind of cold solicitation to come to you if you don't have a personal relationship yeah, totally and it like a part of that farmer mentality thing is like often people feel that they're on the outside of this community looking in but it's like you've got to get your head around you are the center of your community it revolves around you it's like you're making food three meals a day every day you know it, it that's what it's like that old cliche of agricultural supported communities that's really that's the sort of mindset we need to inhabit i think well so you've done a really good job about talking about a lot of the things that i'd already had planned to ask for you which is why i like doing these chats because i really don't <laughs> do any work but um <laughs> one of the things that you often really stress when speaking to people who have limitations whether it's in their market size or in what they're capable of producing or in their land base who are trying to expand their operations thinking that they need to grow bigger and begin to produce more no. i know you are you already know where i'm headed with this can you talk <laughs> about can you talk about how creating efficiency and intensity is usually the way to go and and deceptive <laughs> when people are always trying to go bigger. Yeah, definitely. That's a really important one. Planning for growth. So as I get older, there's a few things that come like, so my career was a lot in land design and uh, doing a lot of consulting when I was younger and on all different scales up to industrial scale ag, like the you know, working on projects dealing with hundreds of thousands of hectares in Mexico and stuff. And it, I'm more and more focused on small scale ag now because I believe in it. And I believe in the wonderful weird people that are moving into that space who aren't the sons and daughters of farmers typically. And there are some benefits and there are some steep learning curves. You know, it's the most potential I see is in flexible-minded entrepreneurial folks who haven't been regimented by institutions or parents who are farmers. However, running a business is a massive thing for anyone and running a farming business is about as vertical as a, you know, steep, get a bit older and less sharp and less strong is like, well, how little can you do? That's a good question to ask yourself. Especially for me rooms. in my context where I've got people coming here that want to try and copy what our farm is doing. And it it's nearly always, no, you definitely don't want to do that. Our farm is very specifically set up to saturate people with possibilities in a world where our agricultural institutions are, you know, not turning out useful farmers. And yeah and it's run by maniac so <laughs> but the so how little can you do and how small can you go 
Ooh, that's a good one. How small can you go? So uh, there's a great example of this. I don't know who's listening in, but my dear friend Marco, I'll tell this story. So Marco at Terra in Luxembourg, um, there's a video on our YouTube channel and uh, you can see a bit of the process when I was visiting them some years ago. The video is called something like a beautiful farm under the orchard. It's like trees with market garden underneath. And then I interviewed Marco for the Farm Like a Hero thing last year and asked him about what happened. So, so they were in a very typical situation. They set up an amazing business. Terra is like a cooperative where they're all on 30,000 euro salary. as four of them running 250 veg shares on a couple of hectares. And first kind of CSA in Luxembourg, right outside Luxembourg City's boundary. And they were all in different life, like changing life circumstances where one had just split up and needed to rent a new house. So they needed more money. One had a kid, so they needed more money. Everyone needed more money. So they were in this absolutely stereotypical place of. And the answer is always no, don't do that. <laughs> so I actually, in that video, it's really cool because I, Marco's a dear friend of mine. I've known him a decade and I lived with him for a few years and I love him dearly. And so I could say things to him that you can't just say to someone easily. And, and I'm aware of this very much in, in my role with education and any degree of public figure that I am, I'm very careful with my speech and I'm very aware that what I say is often taken very directly for people. You know, people are shaping their decision-making with it. So I'm careful about certain things. And I know it's not through consulting career. It's like people are paying me and projecting stuff onto me that I can actually ask questions and say uncomfortable things that no one else around them can because it's like a doctor, we project onto this person, like, you know, a teacher or whatever. And so I'm acutely aware of the psychology of that too. Now, in that context, there's a bit of that video on YouTube where I sit them down at lunchtime and I tell them like, all right, here's what I would do. And basically they were farming one meter 20 beds using inefficient tools they were seeding, their seeding chart was really sparse. It's like I grow things up to six times more densely. And what else was there? Yeah, they were, they were not selling everything they produced. So they were doing all these lovely CSA shares. And then the day that I was there filming, they harvested nearly a thousand euros of tomatoes and just chucked them in the veg boxes that were already worth more than they were selling them for. And it's like, that's nuts. Like you're right outside the capital city and you've got like tomato crops like this that you're just giving to your customers for free. So I advise them to, like I know how much work they put into making these beds, but I advise them to go down to 75 centimeter beds so they could utilize better tools and they're using drip irrigation. So I knew it was a big ask, you know, Oh, yes. The other main thing they were doing is they had beds of 10 meters, 20 meters, 30 meters. And you say, it doesn't matter how long your beds are, but make them all the same because otherwise you're, you know, they had separate folders for crop planning for all these different bloody beds. It's like, that's nuts. Like, even if you don't change your bed, say that your 30 meter bed is actually three 10 meter beds and then your planning's the same, right? It's easy. So I told them to sort that out, look at their seed densities, and and then I was like, if you can go to 75 centimeter beds, I, I was not expecting them to do that. But it was like, that's what I would do. But that's a big ask. Anyway, uh, speaking to Marco last summer, they actually did everything that I suggested. And they all got the pay rise they needed and enough surplus to employ a whole nother person whilst not increasing any of their work, like no extra beds and less work for everyone. 
and it's perfect and that's how it happens every time and I, I i really recommend going and looking that and you know just soaking it in because nearly every time i see someone saying i need more money i'm going to expand they will fail and so my advice is like doubling down it's like okay you need twenty thousand euros more how could you do that with 20 percent less of your market garden as it is currently that would be the right way to approach it like how small can you go and yeah well it requires I, I, a lot of observation and auditing what it is that you're not doing very efficiently or where there are holes in your production or your sales model or opportunities that are not being met in the current way you're managing things right sure but that's what you're doing it's like yeah. it, that's the same as running any business there you have it. Thanks especially to Richard Perkins for sharing his knowledge and experience. You can find the previous interviews that I've done with him on the Regenerative Skills website and find his site at richardperkins.co for links to his books and online courses. Now, if you happen to be a farmer anywhere in Europe who is working towards regenerative methods of production, we'd love to hear from you. Climate Farmers is developing a whole suite of services and resources to help you along your journey. You can make a profile on our website to showcase your products and progress. You can access our growing list of qualified consultants and designers to assist you on any aspect of your farm. And we're working on tools to assist you with monitoring the progress of your environmental regeneration, getting paid for enhanced ecological services, selling directly to consumers, and we're also developing an academy to get you all the education and training that you need to succeed. As a member, you'll also be able to help shape the direction of Europe's regenerative future and inspire others in the farming industries. So what are you waiting for? Sign up as a climate farmer today at climatefarmers.org. Now the questions that we'll be exploring on the Discord server are, what are the biggest challenges on your site when it comes to balancing decisions for the benefit of the ecology and the direct benefits to your business? Have you identified any complementary enterprises that could support your primary ones and maybe even decrease your workload? Remember, it's free to sign up for the Discord server on the website where we'll be exploring this with our ever-growing regenerative skills community. And that wraps things up for this episode. So until next time, keep taking those little steps each day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way. Bye. Good evening. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks, Thank you. Richard. Bye-bye. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Good evening.